to um, uh, the Gospel of John. We are, uh, we are five messages away from the end. Last night, as I was putting the sermon together, we were four messages away, but this, this week's too big. It's going to break into two pieces. Um, so, uh, so if you turn to John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, we're going to read, we're going to pray, and then we're going to bolt through our material this morning because there is a lot of good stuff in God's Word for us this morning. So um, the Gospel of John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29, these are the words of God's servant to us to build us in our faith today. John chapter 20, starting at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. John's referring to the passage that we read two weeks ago when Jesus appeared to the disciples for the first time. So the other disciples told him, they were naturally excited, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray and then we'll turn and explore this passage in God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is sufficient for our needs. We thank you for your word, which is free from error. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is clear. It speaks Lord, not equally clear in every passage, but clearly about the things that are most important. Lord, and we thank you that your word is authoritative. We are called to hear your word, these words written by your servants, as the very words of God spoken to us for the building up, the training of our soul in holiness. Father, we pray that as we hear these words this morning, Lord, each and every word as we hear it, we pray that you would challenge us, teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us to live in righteousness. Father, we pray that we, as we hear these words, Lord, that we would have a firm and solid belief, a growing belief in the truth of the resurrection, Lord, and also that we would move beyond that and we would have a firm and growing belief in your character and in your great and precious promises to us. Make us people of faith and make us like you, we pray, our Lord. Amen.
Well, I have had many promises made to me in my life. Uh, some promises are, uh, are, are not so good. A guy pulled into my driveway, um, this is about a year and a half ago, in a big truck, and it, it had the word meat written on it, and there were all these pieces of meat all over it, you know, it was like, you know, the celebration of, of, uh, of different cuts of meat, and the guy promised me that for a certain amount of money, a subscription fee, that he would deliver me high-quality meats, okay? Now, you know where this is going, right? Have any of you done this? Have any of you got that guy, he comes in, see, you're all really smart. Um, I was very smart, too, and I said no to the guy, leave your paper here, and I'll go and, and investigate, maybe I'll call you, and he left the paper, and I went on the internet, and I found over and over again these statements that these guys promise you the world, and they deliver junk. The meat is awful. It tastes like you're eating multiple uh, different kinds of non-consumable animals. You know, this is disgusting meat. You don't want to eat it. A guy made me a promise, and I turned him away. There's another person who made me a promise, though. Um, she got all dressed up. I got all dressed up. She took a lot more time getting dressed up. I kind of, like, combed my hair and put my glasses on and got my tux on and stood in front of the church and she got all fantastic looking, you know, white dress, back of the church, came forward down the aisle, made a promise to me, to be faithful to me, to love me, to honor me, to cherish me, and to cherish me in a way that she cherished no other from her whole life up to that point and for the rest of her life till her death or mine whichever comes first although she didn't say it in that way and you know what i believed her when she said it i made the exact same promise now what's the difference between those two promises the difference between the promise that my beloved nancy made to me and the guy from generic meat company made is that there was no belief in the second or the first promise, the meat company promise, because there was no trust in that relationship. Does that make sense? Belief in promises, trust is the foundation of belief. And belief is all about trust, because trust is at the heart of belief. This morning, I want to pursue two themes as we look at Thomas in this gospel and as we examine the words of Jesus to, to, to him and the actions of Jesus toward him, I want to pursue two basic ideas, okay? I'm going to give them to you. Uh, I want to warn you ahead of time, those of you who are sermon purists, you know who you are. You will come to me and you will say something later. This sermon is going to head straight through the meaning of the text and then take a left turn, but it is going to stay on the right path, okay? Does that make sense? Okay, first thing we're going to look at is trust and belief in the resurrection, and then second, trust and belief in the character and promises of God. And that's the left turn. You're just going to have to work with me and trust me and love me through that point. Okay, trust and belief in the resurrection. We see this in this passage. Jesus has appeared to his disciples. He has blessed them. He promised them peace he told them about forgiveness of sins. He gave the church a mission. He gave them the Holy Spirit. But there's a complication, right? Ten, 
were there. And one was missing. Thomas wasn't there. Now, naturally, Thomas, when he showed up again, they were like, you couldn't believe what happened to us. You are going to be absolutely amazed. Jesus told us he was going to come back from the dead, and we saw him. And Thomas is thinking, you are all crazy. There is no way. Notice the test that he sets up in verse 25. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I can stick my finger into that mark, and I place my hand into that wound in his side, unless I can verify that it's actually him, I will never believe. I'm not taking your word for it. Forget it. That's crazy talk. And then he's visited. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. I love this. We talked about Jesus' ninja skills two weeks ago. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. He just kind of appears there somehow, or he walks through the wall or something. He just somehow, in his resurrection body, he is more real than the walls and the doors and the locks, and he's able to pass through that sort of thing. Notice Jesus' merciful and gracious character toward Thomas. He shows up and he greets the disciples and he says, peace be with you. I can see what might have happened. Peter, of course, is there first, you know. He's the one who's always first. He, he, he presses in to Jesus, you know, and he's like, hey, I missed you. It's been eight days, you know, hugging and greetings and all that. Maybe Thomas is like hanging back in the back of the room, you know, wondering, what's he going to say? How's he going to act towards me? And at some point, Thomas is maybe occupying himself with rearranging cushions in the room or making sure the lamps have enough oil. And Jesus comes over to him and says, place your hands in the nail marks. Put your hand in my side. And then he administers this soft rebuke to Thomas. Jesus corrects his attitude, but he does it in a gentle way. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He's saying, Thomas, change your attitude. Trust me. Believe in the reality of my resurrection. Now, the question that I have longed to know for so long is, did Thomas actually do it? We don't know. Verse 28 doesn't tell us whether Thomas actually tested Jesus or not, or whether seeing Jesus there in front of him, talking with him, hearing his tone of voice, hearing his compassion and his love and his mercy. Did Thomas just immediately exclaim, or did he actually test and then exclaim to Jesus? We don't know, but he does admit, he testifies. He says, my Lord and my God. For those of you who have been with us through the whole John series, this is the pinnacle of the book. This is the greatest attestation, the greatest confession, that's a better word that I can say, of who Jesus is. He is my Lord. He is a king. And he is also my God. He's deity in human flesh. Thomas praises him and joins the community of the believing. Now notice, Jesus now administers this firm rebuke to Thomas. 
Have you believed? Because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas lost something here. Tom, Thomas missed out on something. I'm not exactly sure how that works out, but there's something, some benefit or blessing. Thomas missed something. Jesus gets the confession from Thomas. Thomas moves from disbelief to belief, but only because he has seen and verified. But the character of the faith that the Bible calls for from us is that of trust in the character and the mercy and the grace of God. I'm going to get to this in a big way in just a couple minutes, but I want to encourage you just to, just to, to wrap your mind around this truth that we are called to take steps in faith, to see God work in our lives and to grow in that trust each and every day. Thomas says, unless God meets these specific conditions in my life, which I demand, I will never believe. Now remember, John's not being hard on Thomas here. He's not specifically pointing him out and, and making him an example. Remember what it said when Peter and John ran to the tomb? Mary told John and Peter that she had seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. And what did John then say? Until he saw the grave close, he didn't believe. And he's admitting there in a humble, I think kind of a, a, a low-key way that he too missed out on whatever this blessing is. Thomas did not trust in the character and the promises of God. And God is working in the hearts of men and women. He is fitting us to have a faith that is completely and totally and wholly devoted to him. When my wife made that promise to me at the altar that day, she didn't sort of commit to me, you know? I didn't sort of commit to her. I'm not kind of into our marriage, you know? I don't kind of pay the bills, right? I don't kind of father my children. I don't kind of love my wife. Do you know what I mean? I am wholly devoted to her. She is wholly devoted to me. There's not a partial commitment there. I don't say things to my wife like, show me the evidence that you love me, you know? demonstrate again afresh that you can be trusted over and over and over again, right? A foundation of a healthy relationship is built on trust that grows and the relationship is able to glide and move forward on the basis of that trust. And that applies to our relationship with God. Now let me apply this to Thomas. Thomas had seen Jesus' miracles over and over again. John will say later in his gospel that there were so many miracles and things and sayings that Jesus did that if every single one of them were written down in detail, there wouldn't be enough room in the libraries of the world to contain the books that would be written. Thomas had seen all of this. 
He had heard Jesus' predictions that he would die and that he would be raised on the third day. He loved and trusted Jesus, but there was a limit. Remember in John 11, when Jesus is going to go back and raise Lazarus from the dead, Thomas is the one who says, let's go with him. He's going back. They were trying to kill him there. Let's go with him and die with him. He was committed to Jesus. But when he saw Jesus dead, he believed it was over, and he had hit the limit of his trust in God's promises and God's character. He stubbornly refused to believe, and he made Jesus prove himself. Deuteronomy 6.16 says this, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Think about how irritating it is to you when someone that you love is continually questioning your integrity or someone that you work for is constantly tasking you and inspecting you and checking up on you. It's like, where is the place for trust in this relationship? Trust me. Trust me. That's what God is working to accomplish in our hearts. Believe. Trust. And there is no more essential fact that we need to trust and believe in than the resurrection of Jesus. This is essential to our faith. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, meaning he goes to the cross for our sins against God's holiness, and he is raised for our justification. His resurrection means that we are right in God's sight. And apart from that fact, the fact of his death on our behalf and his resurrection for our justification, there is no Christian faith. It's so essential that we get this truth, like Thomas, that we believe and we say, my Lord and my God, and we not continually put God to the test over this question. This is the central truth of our faith. If there's no resurrection, Paul says that we're still in our sins. Can we trust the resurrection? Let me just challenge you for a moment here to consider the evidence. We've got valid historical testimony from many eyewitnesses that he was dead. And then we have valid historical testimony that his tomb was empty. And the same people testify that he appeared after his death. We've got recorded in Matthew chapter 28 the testimony about the public reaction of the Jewish leadership, how they tried to cover it up, how they tried to deal with the fact. And then we've got the fact that for over 2,000 years, the historic message of the Christian church has been that Jesus is alive. Think about the church's oldest tradition, that of celebrating the Lord's Supper. What is the central proclamation of that celebration? When the bread is passed and the juice is passed, this is my body which is given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. This is my blood which is poured out as a new covenant. Drink in remembrance of me. And then in 1 Corinthians 11.26, Paul says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus is alive. It's built into the oldest ideas of the church. 
On top of all that, I believe are the two most powerful pieces of evidence. One of them is the historical testimony about the disciples' reaction. Remember Peter's cowardice, how Peter denied Jesus three times on the night before he died. He denied him. He denied that he knew him. He called down curses upon himself. He said, I never knew him. I don't know what you're talking about. And yet, within 40 days, he would be filled with fire to preach this truth for the next 40 or so years of his life. And when people threatened him with beatings and with execution, he would say, if you feel the need to beat me, this is Acts chapter 4, go ahead and do it. But I am not going to stop proclaiming the fact that he is raised from the dead. If it's, it's, it's good to you to beat me and to punish me, so be it. But I have to obey God. What accounts for that transformation other than this rock-solid conviction that he had seen the Lord? The disciples were moved from cowardice to courageous martyrdom. And then I think a final good piece of evidence is that there are just simply no good theories to explain it all away. Now, I've covered a lot of this ground in messages before. This is good Easter preaching stuff. I just want to let you know, if you're interested in reading more on this, Right about 38 minutes ago on the blog, I posted a little booklet called Has Jesus Really Been Raised from the Dead? I want to encourage you that you've got to dig down deep into this truth. If Jesus is not raised, we are still in our sins, Paul says. This is something we've got to be absolutely rock solid on if you want to live a life that's going to be radically transformed by the truth of the gospel. You've got to be solid on this. It can't just be that Jesus was a good teacher. If he was a good teacher and he taught that he was going to be raised from the dead and he's in a tomb somewhere, he's not a good teacher. He's wrong. But if he's raised, and he is, and he calls himself the king of the universe, if he is truly my Lord and my God, then he deserves that we completely sail out for him. Nobody gives up their life for a maybe. Right? And yet that's exactly what Jesus calls for, that we lay down our life. So let me urge you to be certain. Know that you know. Know that you know. Thomas was able as an eyewitness to testify to us, for us, my Lord and my God, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus what some historians have called the most historically documented fact in human history. Let me commend that to you. Trust and belief in the resurrection. But my guess is that this is not where most of you struggle to trust and believe God. And so let me have you flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. I want to challenge you in my remaining time that our trust and belief needs to move beyond some of these historical facts, beyond the basic evidence of Jesus' resurrection to a thorough, mature belief in the character and in the promises of God. My guess is that most of you don't struggle with whether or not you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. If you didn't believe that, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't call yourselves Christians. But as followers of Christ... We so often put God to the test, we frequently fail 
to believe him. And we want, in some ways, for Jesus to appear to us, to show us the nail wounds, to show us the wound in his side, and we refuse to say, my Lord and my God to him, until he meets some test that we've set up for him. Because we want money in the bank before we trust. We want signs and wonders before we take our faith to the next level. We want skywriting that says, share the gospel with so-and-so, right? We want the fleece to be wet and the ground all around to be dry for us to forgive the person who hurt us, right? This is, we put God to the test. We struggle with unbelief. But the nature of God's operation is to ask those whom he calls to himself to trust his word and to follow him without evidence or on a little bit of evidence. We want, in divine terms, we want a giant bag of M&Ms, right? We just we want the whole treat right now. Just give me the candy, right? Show me the money in the bank and I will follow you to the ends of the earth, Jesus. But consider this. You get a whole bag of M&Ms even if you're picking them up one at a time over a long period of time. Does that make sense? And that's the way God leads us. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The stuff, the beliefs, the hopes that we have, we are assured of that by faith. Faith is the conviction of things that we do not yet see. Notice verse 2. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let me unpack that for just a moment. By faith, we understand, we know, we can conceive of it in our minds that the universe was created by the word of God, that God made the whole universe so that what we see, we can know that there was nothing there one moment and that the next moment there was an entire universe there. We know that how? By fact or by faith. There are many people, young folks, you will go to college, many of you have sat through college classes or you're in college classes or you're in high school biology classes where your teachers are telling you don't believe in special creation by the word of God because that's religious it's a fairy tale it's not a fact and they say the fact is that the universe was created by a giant bang there was a compressed egg of atoms and matter and it was there and it was super dense and it was all gathered together and exploded and that was 14 billion years ago, and the universe is continuing to expand and will one day contract in the cold death of the universe. And that's what they say. And I'm like, really? And you believe that? Why? Because somebody took a picture of that that you have? I mean, think about it. It's a faith commitment, the truth that the universe was created 14 billion years ago. Who was there? Nobody alive today. There's no pictures, there's no records. It's a faith commitment. By faith, we believe that God created the universe by his word. By faith, they believe that the universe is 14 billion years old. And I don't mean to reduce their beliefs or to mock that belief, other than to say it's equally by faith. I could pick up a rock, too, and perform a test on it and say that it's 14 billion years old. 
I could do that. I could do that. That doesn't mean it's true. Look at verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He saw the call of God. He saw the single M&M. He saw the invitation to follow, and he followed by faith. He followed God. He heard God's voice, and he said, My Lord and my God, and he said, Yes, I will follow. And he left everything, and he followed God. He had no idea where he was going. He had no idea what he was doing. Verse 9, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You know what he said? I may not see the evidence of the truth of these things in front of me immediately, but I know God. I love him. He is my Lord. He is my God. And he is worthy of my worship, even though it doesn't make sense and I can't see it all in front of me right now. That's living by faith. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age. How did she receive power to conceive? Since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead. I love that. He was 90. The writer of Hebrews says he's good as dead. Wow. Therefore, from one man were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith not having received the things promised. They didn't get what they were hoping for. They didn't get the big bag of M&Ms. They got the individual promises. They saw God acting in their life. They heard God's word. They obeyed it, and they progressively followed him, growing in trust and growing in faith all of their lives. Look at verse 13. Stick with me here. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. People who don't receive what they're promised, people who trust in God who promises and who follow, even though they might not necessarily know where they're going, but they have a conviction about things that they haven't seen, these kind of people, verse 14, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. This is so important right here in verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. What is God doing in calling us to live by faith? He is calling us to trust fully in him, to trust completely in him, to honor him totally, and to worship him with all that we have, all of our days, because he's infinitely worthy of worship and praise. That's what God is calling us to by faith. He's saying, trust me, trust my goodness, trust my character in everything. And he longs for our hearts to resound when we say, my Lord and my God, yes, I will follow you. I will follow you in fullness. Listen to what Asaph, the psalmist, 
says in Psalm 23, Psalm 73, sorry, verse 25 and 26, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the heart that's full of faith that looks to God and says, my Lord and my God, yes. Okay? Now, I laid that foundation, the foundation of faith. I want to challenge you. This is going to roll over into next week. But as we, as we close out, I want you to hear this second major point. It's right to focus our hearts today as Christians on Jesus' words. Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here's the principle in general. Okay, our fighter verse for today, Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. What does an evil, unbelieving heart do? It leads us to fall away from the living God. So what's our reaction in verse 13, the writer says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The number one enemy of faith and belief and joy in God is the sin of unbelief. Here's my challenge. This is your duty to yourself, to your brothers and sisters in Christ, and to the lost, to exhort one another that we might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and that we may make sure that there's not an evil, unbelieving heart in us. Okay, did you hear that? This is your responsibility, Christian. If you're a Christian and you attend this church, if you're a Christian and you're in this choir, if you're a Christian and you're, 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 you are in a church in some other place, this is your responsibility toward each other. Exhort one another that there might not be an evil, unbelieving heart in you. I'm hoping that we as a church will grow to make this a theme in our conversations. By the way, it's a different sermon. This is kind of like a, a, a random appetizer in the middle of a meal. This is what fellowship is. Deep spiritual communion about the things of the soul. And this is the test of true friendship. Fellowship is not defending yourself with a cup of coffee and a small piece of a donut and making small talk. You know, that's not, that's not fellowship. We could call that socializing. Gathering together, playing games is good. We ought to do that. It's not fellowship. I would put that under the heading of greeting one another or bearing with one another, you know, talking to people while drinking coffee. You know, that, that's not fellowship, though. Fellowship is exhorting one another, encouraging one another, walking in the light, as John says, so that we make sure we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me challenge you to make this a theme in your conversations. Here's my Father's Day sermons. Fathers, lay aside the defenses. When your kids say, God tells you you're not supposed to act like that, repent. We, are, we can be such ogres in the home at times. How dare you challenge my sovereignty? 
You know, I'm your father and you're supposed to honor me. No, when your kids call you, repent. Why? Because they will see the character of a repentant sinner. And they'll see how they're supposed to act. Make that a theme in your conversation with your kids. Deal with your own unbelief in your Bible study. Deal with specific issues of unbelief. In youth group, small group leaders, this is a primary task in your work to exhort the members of your group, not specifically though, not embarrassingly in front of the group, hey, that's unbelief right there, but in a loving, gentle way to help people overcome belief. If you're meeting with someone doing one-on-one discipleship, this is what it is to urge people on to faith. Okay? Now, I have five minutes, and in these five minutes, I want to state 12 areas in which we can, in which we do, regularly disbelieve God. Okay? Not going to go through them all this morning. That's next week. But I want to list these out, and then I want to take one specific example and talk about how we can fight for joy in faith. How do we fight for joy and faith on a daily basis? This is why we're memorizing fighter verses. This is why they're in the bulletin every week, so that we can grow in our knowledge of God's word that we might not sin against him. How do we fight for joy and faith? When we identify unbelief, we repent. And then we trust based on God's promises to us in the Word. That's how you overcome. That's how you grow. You find unbelief, you repent of it, trust in specific promises from God's Word. Okay? David says this in Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's inviting God to search him, to expose his soul, to lead him out of sin that he might fully and devotedly believe in the promises of God and cry out, my Lord and my God. Now, what are the ways in which we don't believe? There's 12 of them. If you don't get them all down, don't worry. We're going to go back to them next week. And if you suffer or deal with any of these things like me, this will be extremely painful next week. The unbelief, first, of anxiety. The unbelief of bitterness and an unforgiving spirit. The unbelief of covetousness. The unbelief of false guilt. The unbelief of a proud and haughty spirit. The unbelief of impatience. The unbelief of indulgent desire. The unbelief of jealousy and envy. The unbelief of despondency and despair. The unbelief of lust. The unbelief of regret. And then finally, the unbelief of self-praise. If you think those things don't sound like unbelief to me, let me just focus your heart. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 talks about covetousness, which is idolatry. It's worshiping a false god, which is believing that stuff is more important than worshiping the true God, and that is unbelief. It's critical that we fight. We're called in Ephesians 4.22 to put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, 
I don't know how I'm going to do this. Let me just explore the unbelief of anxiety with you. Dan Fuller has called anxiety a tool of the devil to get a believer to credit some dark scenario that might follow from a problem presently confronting them. Does that make sense? Anxiety, right? There's a problem presently confronting me, and the devil is now encouraging me to imagine dark scenarios based on this present problem, right? Kid goes to the dentist, three teeth come out of his mouth, $138, gone. Oh, did not plan on that. What am I going to do? How am I going to make my mortgage? How am I going to make my car payment? How am I going to put new tires on the car? Are we going to have enough in the food budget? How are we going to go on vacation? You know? And, and in truth, honestly, let me just say this. This is not the pastor begging for more money. I got, I got enough money. But this is what goes on in the back of my mind. Why? Because the devil wants me not to believe that God is good and will meet all my needs according to his riches in glory. John Piper calls anxiety the loss of confident security in God owing to feelings of uneasiness or foreboding that something harmful is going to happen. Anxiety syndrome begins to rage and take root in our heart as we run through the scenario of this lack of whatever will lead to my destruction. This will be the end. And, and anxiety begins to reign in our mind. Anxiety is unbelief. It denies the truth that God will meet our needs, that he's powerful, that he's good, that he's mighty, that he's willing to save. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to wrap this up. I have a whole page of notes. I'm going to condense it just to, to, to two ideas, and then, and then we'll go. Let me challenge you. If you struggle with this form of unbelief, let me challenge you to memorize specific promises that expose to your heart the risks of unbelief and which teach you the truth why you should believe and then repent of your unbelief and trust. Okay? Does that make sense? 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Here's my anxious idea bumping up against God's sovereignty and God's goodness and God's willingness and desire and faithfulness to care for me. And I'm just letting this idea reign in my mind. Paul says we destroy arguments. We take every thought captive to Christ. Anxiety is a failure to acknowledge, unravel, and deflate false arguments based on the goodness of the promises of God. We ought to identify those thought patterns, repent of them, and fight back by quoting specific promises about God's goodness and saying, my Lord and my God, you're good to me. You love me. Destroy the anxiety that lives in your heart. One more verse. Lamentations 3.22 and 23. It's the basis of my wife's favorite hymn. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. When anxiety about your job or anxiety about whether or not your kids will grow up to be healthy and safe or anxiety about a situation in your church or anxiety about money or anxiety about anything in your life, when that rages in your heart and you allow it to to take control of your mind and you don't fight back with a promise like Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, what you're saying is God is not faithful. You're saying that the steadfast love of the Lord does cease. His mercies have come to an end. But that's not true. God does love us. His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. He is always faithful. And so identify that thought pattern. Repent. Fight back by saying, my Lord and my God. I taught my six-year-old this. This is what I'm going to close with and pray. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Psalm 56.3. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. When anxiety pops up, just push it down. I'm afraid. This situation's out of control. I can't handle it on my own. Will God be there? I put my trust in him. My Lord and my God. Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and believe. More on this next week. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are called to fight the fight of faith. We are called to fight corruption and negative, uh, the, 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 the presence of sin in us. We're called to fight corrupting evil desire within us, Lord. And we thank you that you call us to belief, but we thank you that you don't call us to fight for our salvation because our Savior has done that for us. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has obeyed perfectly righteously. He's robbed us of the main reason for anxious behavior, and that's the fact that we don't feel at peace with God. You are so good to us. You comfort us in times of stress. Your mercies are new every morning. Father, I pray that as we grow in fellowship as a church and as we grow in love for one another, Lord, and as discipleship relationships grow and as friendships grow, that the desire to see each other repent of unbelief will grow as well. Father, and I pray that within trusted relationships from this pulpit, within small groups, within youth group, within small Bible studies that meet during the week. Lord, as we ponder the great truths of your word, Father, I pray that we would each be encouraging and exhorting one another to trust in your goodness and your character. Father, I pray that you would help us to see your goodness and your kindness and your love and your mercy. Help us to trust in the foundational fact of your resurrection, yes. Help us not to put you to the test by disbelieving things that you've said over and over in your word. You are our daddy and you love us. You'll never leave us or forsake us and we can trust you. And so we pray, Lord, that we would do that each and every day until the day when we meet you. We thank you. We love you. We pray blessing on us, Lord, which we know that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.